Back, you know what, Glenn, take this one. Here's this. Is the rapture true? If so, when does it happen? Okay, if you are able, real quick in the room, just if you're able, if you can't, that's fine. Stand up, seriously. Stand up. Stretch just a little bit, because this ain't a short answer, okay? <laughs> you can sit back down. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I want to give credit where it's due. Uh, I did some grad studies in 2015, and there's a couple authors, Bruce Ware and um, Millard Erickson, who have been really helpful uh, to me through the years in understanding uh, eschatology, which is the study of the end times or the last things. So um, here's the key text where the question of the rapture, which we're going to get to really saying what that is. I would expect there might be some people in the room who are like, I don't even really know what that is. So uh, here it is, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read to you 13 to 17. says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself, here it is, will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, first the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Key verse right here. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So the word rapture, you don't see that in, in your English Bible. We get it from the Latin translation of that last verse there, caught up. Um, I'm not sure how to say the Latin version of it, like rapturo or something. But that's where we get rapture from. And unfortunately, it's not, Usher's hit song, Caught Up, does not have anything to do with the rapture. Uh, I wish it did. But the rapture is a subject within the study of the end times. And it's basically how, here's the study of the end times. How is God going to bring closure to the age that we're in? And establish his kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth forever. What's going to happen? In what order are those events going to take place? Now, there is so much that could be said here. Uh, some of you in the room are going to want me to say something. I'm probably not going to say it. Uh, there's just so many things that we could, we could do. So I want to try to just brief us in response to the question, which is, is it true? And if so, uh, when does it happen? What scripture teaches us is that there will be a great tribulation before Jesus' second coming, in which, on the planet, um, deception will rise, God's discipline will increase, his wrath will be poured out on the world, um, hatred and persecution will come. The question of the rapture has to do with whether believers will be present or absent during those seven years. So let's consider a few views, okay? The first view, there's really three popular ones, the first view is pre-tribulational Rapture. This is popularized by the Left Behind books and movies. Anybody seen those? Anybody familiar? Got some hands in the room. Um, this view is that the church, which is made up of all true believers in Christ, is going to be taken up or raptured just prior to that seven-year tribulation period. And this time of tribulation is seen as unique in its 
intensity, its severity. That's why it's called the Great Tribulation, perhaps to distinguish it from all other kinds of persecutions or trials or tribulations uh, that the church goes through. And the church is going to escape it. Not going to be present for any of it. Christ's second coming then is in two stages. Um, The first, when Jesus comes for the church and meets the church in the air, caught up with him in the air. The second, when Christ comes back after the tribulation with the church to set up his millennial kingdom. Now, the millennium is a whole other conversation. Uh, Can't wait for this time next year for someone to ask a question on that. You'll have to wait a year. Here's the thing, the, 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 a big purpose of the tribulation in this view is to save the Jewish people and, and prepare for the restoration of Israel. And within pre-tribulation rapture, there are three resurrections that happen. The first is the resurrection of the, the believers who are dead to meet the Lord in the air prior to the tribulation. The second is the resurrection of the martyred saints who died during the tribulation. We get that from Revelation chapter 20. I just want to show you biblical text. Uh, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you have a resurrection of the righteous dead to meet the Lord in the air. You have the resurrection of all the people who uh, became believers, were martyred during the tribulation. Then number three, you have the resurrection of all unbelievers at the end of the millennial kingdom, which is the next verse, Revelation 25. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So two Main judgments are seen within this view. The first is the judgment of believers taking place at the judgment seat of Christ. We get that from Revelation chapter 19 and 2 Corinthians 5. The second is the great white throne judgment of all the unsaved at the end of the millennium from the next chapter, Revelation 20. I'll read that to you just so you can see it. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, a few things that are in support of this pre-tribulation view. And by the way, this is by far the longest one. The other two are a lot shorter. Um, A few things. Number one is the assertion that all of the judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation that have to do with God's wrath, they describe divine judgment Not that's just like some more tribulations, but a person in this camp would argue that they describe judgment of enormous proportions. So much so that there's no way that God would allow his people to endure that. The second thing is a need for an interval between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, the the return of Christ. Um, Proponents of this would say that The church needs to be purified before Christ comes, and that's what happens 
during the, the first judgment uh, and the first resurrection. Here's the last thing that I would say, uh, just to bring it, land the plane, that is one of the biggest arguments for a pre-tribulation rapture. And that is that over and over again, we are told in Scripture to be ready, be on the alert, be watchful for the coming of Christ. And a, a pre-trib argument would say that those only make sense if there's nothing that needs to be fulfilled still, prophetically, um, in a time of tribulation. There's nothing that needs to be fulfilled that stands between right now and Jesus coming. So, that's the pre-tribulation view. Some much shorter ones. Number two is the, the mid-tribulation or the pre-wrath view. This is a view that the church will be present for and go through the first half, about three and a half years of the tribulation, which is seen as more natural tribulations and trials, but will be raptured out at the halfway point uh, and so be absent for the latter three and a half years, which is just prior to the outpouring of God's wrath. There's a difference between tribulation and wrath in this view, and support is found in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's giving his discourse on the Mount of Olives. And they had asked him to explain his return, explain to us the end of the world. And Jesus says a lot. He says a lot about false prophets, wars, famines, natural disasters, Christian persecution and martyrdom, sin becoming rampant, um, and interesting love becoming cold and, and dormant and absent in our world. The key assertion in this view is that Jesus makes a transition in verse 21. Again, I want to just read it to you. This is Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. After the anguish of those days, that line in verse 29 indicates in this view a shift from the natural forms of tribulation of the first half to the second half, which is really the divine wrath of God being poured out. And several verses of scripture, this is key to this whole debate, several verses of scripture tell us that God has... Um, promised us that we will not experience his wrath for those who are in Christ. I'll give you a few. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then a huge one, Revelation three ten, Probably the most pointed verse of debate in the Bible on this stuff. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So, God will remove the church from the earth just prior to the outpouring of his wrath. Now, the third view. The third view is the post-tribulational view. Um, many of you are like, I did not sign up for seminary. This is just a local church. Like, why are we... so? Bear with me here, okay? You did ask. That's your fault. We actually have more than one person ask, okay? So this is on you, not us. The church, the church in the post-tribulational view 
the church will go through the tribulation rather than being raptured out before or in the middle of the tribulation. So in this view, the rapture of the church and the resurrection of all dead saints occur in the same unitary singular event. Does that make sense? There is no rapture, you know, kind of, I hate to say it, kind of a yo-yo where Jesus comes down, gets people, goes back up, seven years later, you know, comes back. It, this, the, the argument is that it all happens in one fell swoop. The, the, the people of God are, are caught up with him in, in the clouds. He comes for his saints, and then immediately he establishes his kingdom. Saints rule with him. Um, one of the things that lies underneath this view generally is that post-tribulationists would see the church as having replaced national Israel as the covenant people of God. There's a whole system of theology behind a pre-tribulational rapture that would say that there is a clear distinction uh, throughout Scripture between the church, which includes the, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel and God's covenant. God's covenants are different with the people of Israel and with the church, us Gentiles today. The support for the post-tribulational view, and then I'm done, is this. And, and they're kind of compelling. Uh, the church is never told that it is to escape tribulation. The Greek word phlipsis, which is used for tribulation, is used 55 times in the New Testament. 47 of those relate to tribulation that is to be endured by the saints. That same word is used in what Jesus was saying in Matthew 24 of the Great Tribulation. Another thing in support of this view is that 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the text we started with, it describes the church meeting the Lord in the air, but it does not say in any way that the Lord takes the church on up to heaven for three and a half or seven years. Just on its surface, it doesn't say that. Um, through Revelation 6 through 18, the people of God are thought to be present in the way that you read those passages. Um, and so there's no reason to exclude the church from tribulation passages. And then finally, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is writing to an audience who thinks that they are enduring the day of the Lord or the time of the great tribulation. And they would have to have believed um, in a pre-trib rapture. Uh, they wouldn't have believed that if they believed in a pre-tribulation rapture, to think that they were experiencing the tribulation and the day of the Lord. And Paul only tells them that their current persecution is not the day of the Lord, not the tribulation, just that they will be spared from it. So, in conclusion, let me just clear the lines here. City Light Bennington does not have a dogmatic view on the rapture. Uh, there is no need to divide fellowship, I believe, over a subject like this. There are actually honest, thorough, biblical emphases that give compelling cases for each of those views, even if your pastors might personally you know, lean toward one or the other. Here is where we all ought to align and where the church is dogmatic. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. Living our lives in light of that changes everything. Jesus is coming back, and with his coming will come judgment, will come wrath, will come the driving out of Satan and sin and death forever. And we believe wholeheartedly that this is imminent. Nothing is going to stop this from happening. It is coming, period. 
That is a belief that we are, are dogmatic on, is that the second coming of Jesus uh, is coming. And here's the thing. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. I had to save this for the last. This is the verse right after everything we read at the top of my answer. The next verse, Paul says in closing, as he's talking about Jesus' second coming, encourage or strengthen or comfort one another with these words. So why would he go to all that length to share that? So that we could get exhausted debating all of the ways it's going to happen rather than I'm so encouraged, I'm comforted, I'm strengthened right now for today because Jesus is coming again. And if you belong to Christ, we have full assurance that the story ends really, really well for us. So a recommended resource for you uh, is called A Basic Guide to Eschatology, Making Sense of the Millennium. It's by Millard Erickson. Would highly recommend that. Woo! That's good. That's good, Glenn.